we don't want to deal with the squishiness of that. We want to hand things over to rational systems. And I understand that impulse, but you know, as this book and hopefully my book tries to illustrate, like that can get us into a huge amount of trouble. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Jake Ward is here, who writes it down, Jacob, but goes by Jake. I do. His work has appeared in The New Yorker and Wired. He was the editor-in-chief of Popular Science. He hosted Hacking Your Mind on PBS, which is a four-hour series about the science and implications of bias, which is fascinating. He was a correspondent for Al Jazeera covering science and technology in the U.S. and around the world. Most recently and currently, he is an NBC News correspondent for the Today Show, the Nightly News, MSNBC, and NBC News Now. And he and I actually met because he interviewed me That's right. about a project that I did with the Unfinished Symphony. I don't know if our listeners know that I'm a composer. Yeah, right. <laughs> All of them, but I am. And so you can see uh, me and Jacob Ward on a Today Show segment together. And what's so cool about that segment, right, was this was at a time when I was trying to convince the top people at NBC that we need to be covering AI and the difficulty in covering that kind of thing in television is that they don't know what to point a camera at. And then along comes Lucas with this partnership with Huawei in which he was going to finish the unfinished symphony using the AI on board a single phone. And I still use that as my like great representation of all the things that AI can do thanks to you and your ability to also articulate just how close, right? The fidelity of this thing you felt was pretty strong based on what you knew of his work. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, as strong as it can be. Enough to fool me. Enough yeah. to fool people who don't know, maybe. I haven't told the story. So I haven't released the album yet because I'm going to release it. I'm working on a book too. I'm going to release it with my book. Great. But I wanted to get it mastered by a great mastering engineer. And Bob Ludwig is the GOAT. He's huh. the, the Rolling Stones. Every great album you've ever heard of. He's the mastering engineer. Wow. And so I sent it to him and he listened to it, wrote me a five-page email about his problems with it, and then mastered it and sent it to me for free. Whoa, interesting. <laughs> Problems with it, like his ethical objections to it? Yeah, like, I mean, very specific. You know, he said, okay, up until about three minutes in, you know, you really had me. And then you did this one gesture that really was more from 20 oh, years later. Interesting. He didn't yeah. know that this was, that there was some AI guidance he, he going on He knew it here. was AI, and I think that's why he was so interested in critiquing right. it. Had he watched our piece, he would have seen... You know, I thought that what the AI was suggesting was that Schubert might have come back to it later. The beginning of it was more modern. It's, he wrote three movements, well, two movements and a sketch of a third in a triple meter, which was unheard of at the time. Um, right. So I thought that it, had Schubert lived past 32, I think he died at. Yeah. You know, if he had come back to this in his 60s, it might have made more sense and he could have uh, finished it. Huh, that's so um, interesting. We should introduce the book that you picked, which is How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind by Paul Erickson and several other co-authors. Apparently they decided with a computer randomizer who was going to be listed first. <laughs> Which is so, so brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so brilliant, right? But that's right. A long list of folks. I was primarily in touch in researching my book with Paul Erickson, who is, you know, the computer chose as the lead author here. But that's right. We should mention Judy Klein, Lorraine Daston, Rebecca Lemov, Thomas Sturm, and Michael Gordon. And yeah, for me, the reason that I chose this book, there were many seminal books for me in writing The Loop. So just as a background, the book, The Loop, that I wrote is about how AI is poised to do to our ability to make choices for ourselves what Google Maps did to our sense of direction. That's my elevator pitch. And the places, the categories of human behavior that I think it's going to change are more or less limitless. I think it's more, you know, from music 
to art, to all sorts of things. And I was describing in a casual conversation as I was writing this book to a military officer at an event, I was describing the use of technology in decision-making in the military complex and was talking about these decision guidance systems that Boeing and Lockheed Martin and others make. There are these packages of software that are very much to military decisions what Google Maps are to getting from here to there. So well, Google Maps will say, here's three different ways to get from here to there. These battlefield decision managers are similarly software packages that tell like an Air Force colonel or whoever, like, oh, you know, you want to invade this? Okay, here's your land option. Here's your sea option. Here's your air option. Here's the fuel you'll need. Here's the supply chain you'll need, right? It boils this intense amount of coordination down into these software. So I was describing this to this guy or, you know, asking him about it. And he said, well, obviously you've read How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind, right? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. And he said, How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind. It's a book you should read about Cold War rationality. And I was like, okay. And I went off and I discovered that not only was it a life-transforming book, it also was mostly about people who had also been in this thing called the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences that I was in as a fellow at that time, which shows you how naive I was. So <laughs> basically the book is about the rise of rationality in military strategic planning around the Cold War. It's like Dr. Strangelove, basically, but in nonfiction. And what it's specifically concerns itself with is the rise of people who were trying to take what had been a totally improvisational amount of military planning during World War One, World War II, and then turned it into this programmed, amazingly efficient system for moving personnel and materials around the battlefield and around the world. And so the launching event is the spring of 1948 when Berlin is divided into four territories, three of which are allies, right? The US, Britain, and France, and then the Soviet section of the city. And, you know, the, obviously like tensions were on the rise and everybody could tell that this was, you know, this relationship was definitely falling apart. And the allies then changed the currency of their section of Berlin such that it's gonna wildly devalue the Soviet currency. And the Soviets say, F that. And they come in and they blockade the city. And this is the Berlin Wall. This is the beginning of the Berlin Wall, right. right? So that blockade was intended to starve out the inhabitants of Berlin such that they would have to capitulate and come under Soviet rule. But in June of 1948, as the summer is arriving, the Allies begin this incredible air supply route called the Berlin Airlift that winds up keeping Berlin's occupants alive for a year. And they basically figured out the math of how you can move enough food, fuel, and water in and out of that city to keep it alive. Only by air, because no trains, no trucks, you can't get anything else in. And this marooned population absolutely survives by virtue of this incredible system. The estimate was that by the time it had really reached its apex of efficiency, a plane was landing in Berlin every 62 seconds. Dropping crazy. things off. Crazy, right? Yeah. Crazy. Now, this is at a time when the state of the art for military planning had been these systems to try and like move fuel from here to there that very often were like costing the allies more fuel than they were actually transporting. You had these crazy systems in which people were doing air attacks that, you know, were killing the vast majority of people involved. 
And one reason that the Soviet Union lost 40 people for every one allied soldier that died was they were totally willing to spend this incredibly efficient amount of human life on the effort. And these folks who came up with the Berlin Airlift inspired this thing in, in the War Department called Project Scoop that turned out to be the beginnings of algorithmic thinking about how you move things around, how you make decisions. And that inspired this whole movement called the Cold War Rationalists. And they are connected to like the Rand Corporation and other things. And they set us on this path of trying to avoid nuclear war by basically pre-programming the decisions one would make in the event of a negotiation between two nuclear powers in this strange Lovian way. And I don't want to oversimplify the book because they're very <laughs> smart and they are here to sort of examine the pros and cons of that approach and what it meant for the later and so forth. But what I took away from it is, I mean, it's not called how reason almost lost its mind, coincidentally. Like their thing is, if we had gone all the way to the place where you had locked in and pre-programmed decisions between nuclear powers, we would be really screwed right now. Oh, it'd be Mad Max. That's right. It'd be, that's right. Yes. It'd be Mad Max. To bring it back to Road It'd Warrior. be Jaws on Wheels. Yes. No question. <laughs> and so for me, it was so interesting because what it helped reinforce, and this is true throughout my book, is the temptation on the part of even the smartest people, and I would maybe argue especially the smartest people thinking about how to move things around and be organized in this life, to hand over very difficult, very important decisions to automated systems. In this case, these algorithms that they came up with in the 40s and the early 50s, but in the case of all these other arenas, right, that we're seeing now, AI. And the desire of government to do this, to hand over this responsibility. One of the centerpieces of the book is the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if they had followed what their Cold War rationalism had dictated, we would have been in a nuclear war. That's right. What, what ended up happening was the, the United States made overtures of peace and basically cut a backdoor deal. And that's why we didn't go to war over the missiles in Cuba. And the, the thing that's so important and fascinating about the difficulties of making decisions at these high levels. So in the military, you have all of these different instances in which you have automated system making some decisions about the use of deadly force, or at least very serious force. But the military has this principle, which you hear a lot, and it's part of the inspiration for the book, called human in the loop. They would argue, you know, you have a human sort of really making the decisions. But the truth of the matter is, all they really have is veto power in a lot of these military systems. But what's so interesting is that that is exactly what was going on with the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had people marching down the road of confrontation with the Soviet Union. And at that time, Khrushchev is posturing for the benefit of the hardliners inside the Soviet Union with this bluster and so forth. But then he sends this weird second letter to Kennedy saying that thing about, you know, we should not pull on the knot of war. That knot will get tighter and tighter. And we both know where that leads. Now, this was supposed to be this private communique. And so all of the hardliners, including Curtis LeMay, who had been one of the people whose example Project Scoop and the Berlin Airlift was trying to push back against this guy who would throw humans into death all the time. He was arguing, we should go for it. We should go for it. And the logic of something like the prisoner's dilemma, which was one of the great psychological experiments that inspired these guys, would have been go for it, attack, you know, launch a nuclear strike. Instead, Kennedy steps in. He's the human in the loop. And he says, you know, what is this weird second letter? And you know, I don't want to oversimplify this. The Cuban Missile Crisis is not my expertise, but <laughs> but the way I understand it is that it was really 
Kennedy and a couple of people saying, I don't know. Even though logic dictates we should go for it here, I'm not sure we should do that based on the weird intricacies of negotiation that they were seeing between these two letters from Khrushchev. And so it's that thing of like, how do we keep a human in the loop? But even in that case, like we came so close to nuclear confrontation, especially if we had followed the algorithms that these guys had come up with. To make a little metaphor here, the algorithm dictated basically it was about proportional force, mm. right? And so let's say you and I are at a bar. We're having a heated debate and we're both pretty big guys and it comes to like, we're squaring off, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're both actually pretty big guys. We're both going to the hospital if we get in a fist fight, <laughs> right, sure. right? right? The right. algorithm dictates that what I should do as the shorter man is give you a little jab and mm. that will let you know that I have some power and that you should back off. What's that going to do in practice? Right, right, right. With yeah. with a with a, a bottle of wine in me, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. What's what exactly am yes. I going to do in practice? That's going to be an all out fist fight. What I really should do, which no algorithm would dictate, is be like, you know what? Let's just have a shot. That's right. And yeah. the, and all the self defense people would yeah. say, no, no, no. You you back up with your hands up, ready for anything. But yeah. you know, you're defusing. The whole point is to defuse the situation. That's yeah. right. And in the delicate choreography of drunk people at bars, it's funny. I'm always drawing comparisons between dealing with drunk people being a great preparation for dealing with toddlers. You're constantly talking them <laughs> off the ledge, agree. right? Right. Completely You're agree. like, like if you can talk your friend into giving you his keys, you can <laughs> definitely talk a kid into, you know, not climbing the counters or, you know, giving back that <laughs> knife or whatever it's going to be. Right. And so in this case, you're absolutely right. There's this delicate choreography in human relationships. And and the thing that I think the Project Scoop people and the Rand Corporation people, and even into today, the Stanford graduates who are coming up with AI is they want to believe that human behavior can be boiled down into a set of predictive algorithms, that the patterns of our behavior are predictable and knowable. Now, I spent a huge amount of time on this PBS series and a huge amount of the book on the idea that, yes, in fact, a huge amount of our behavior is predictable and knowable, no question. But the reason we've been able to rise above that is by not empowering those patterns of behavior, by not just giving them the automatic decision-making systems that we have, the punch the bigger guy in the face instincts that we have. If we give those instincts free reign, the Cuban Missile Crisis turns out different. The bar fight turns out different. And in this case, I think the accommodation we have not made, and part of this has to do with profit motive, and part of this has to do with the sort of like societal allergy to making tough decisions and all that stuff, is that you know, we don't know how to say, you know, maybe Khrushchev's letter, the second letter is the one we should listen to. We don't want to deal with the squishiness of that. We want to hand things over to rational systems. And I understand that impulse, but, you know, as this book and hopefully my book tries to illustrate, like that can get us into a huge amount of trouble. Yeah. And it abdicates responsibility for things that we really need to be responsible for. Mm -hmm. And yeah, one of the common themes in this book and in your book, and maybe we can sort of use this as a transition is just that you seem to say that people have a hard time distinguishing between an abstraction of something and the thing itself. Yeah, the human tendency to confuse abstraction with reality. And the idea that th there are some human behaviors, as you said, that we can predict, but like that prediction itself is an abstraction. Before we even decide what a behavior is, we're excluding some data from that decision. So we can pretty reliably pick what you, Jake Ward, will want to buy on Amazon. Mm -hmm, you know, sure. that doesn't necessarily say anything about the next book you're going to write. Mm, that's you know, right. There are these narrow domains where we can, and AI through really fast math can make these really great decisions. And it's very tempting to extrapolate that to, well, if it can make, do this well, it's only a matter of time before it can do 
everything. That's right. Why, why shouldn't yeah. we give it all possible uh, things? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? AI as a pattern recognition system can, for instance, do a fantastic job distinguishing between a precancerous and benign mole on your back, right? You show a piece of AI that's been trained on enough photographs, a picture of a mole. It can tell at this point better, according to the studies, than a trained human can, whether that thing stands a chance of killing you. So that is an instance in which you have this fantastic algorithm with a tremendous predictive ability actually able to save life. Incredible, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, because it can do that, should we actually be handing it the ability to decide who gets a job, who gets a loan, mm -hmm. who gets bail, right? These are the things that we are porting it over to. And there's this tendency, I think, to assume that because something is good at one thing, it'll be good at great things. We're seeing this right now, I would point out, mm -hmm. with the billionaire leaders of certain corporations moving to take over other corporations and <laughs> and turning out to not know anything about how to do that thing. So We're not going to name any names. We're not naming any names here, but you know what I'm saying? Like there are, there are, Our tendency is to assume that because a thing is good at one thing, it's going to be good at lots of things. And in this case, if this thing can allow us to abdicate, like you say, responsibility for some really hard and squishy decisions, we love to do that. And yeah. and the and all of this, the behavioral scientists would say that we are in fact pre-programmed as a species to want to offload tough decisions to external systems wherever we possibly can. So this is a funny, sticky little thing that, you know, people assume, people in power especially assume that if, if you're good at one thing, you're going to be good at another thing. Right. And while that's not necessarily true, Jake, I, I think we've both benefited from that. I oh, mean, yeah. You know, you're the editor of Popular Science. You decide you want to be on TV. Well, you know, he did this thing at a high level. That's he right. could probably do this thing at well, a high that's level. that's right. And I mean, I will just say my craven professional ambitions definitely play into the sort of pattern recognition system of Western society, right? One of the reasons I wanted to write this book. I mean, obviously I was motivated by this thesis and I thought that it was a thing that hadn't really been said yet. And I wanted to say that and so forth, but I also, I'm not immune to the idea that I also, I wanted there to be three qualifications under my name. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the former editor of popular science an NBC correspondent and the author of the loop, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, it's, and in magazines, you learn the rule of threes that it's a trend when it's three. You know, if you only have two examples of a thing, then you cannot defend it as a trend in your piece. You need three <laughs> things. You're absolutely correct that like the qualifications of humans to make decisions are absolutely pattern recognition based. And that's not even mentioning the huge privilege of being a six foot seven straight white dude, right? right. I mean, there's a huge amount of that. So that's absolutely correct. And the difficulty is, and the thing I'm trying to point out in this book is, we are poised to only reinforce that if we simply go with the recommendation algorithms that are available to us. And that's one of the most difficult things here. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's also the loop. T tell us about the loop. So yeah. there's, there's really three loops Yeah, and give us the sort of outline. Yeah. If I, you know, if I had written this book again, I think I would have kept it a little simpler because I wound up sort of tying myself in knots with these three loops. But the loops that I am articulating are like, I think of them as like, if you imagine a dartboard style series of circles, right? A small one, a bigger one, and a bigger one around that. And the one at the center is human behavior and the way that human behavior really acts in this very predictable way. So as you mentioned, I was the host of this show, Hacking Your Mind on PBS. It was this big series, four one-hour episodes, and we went all over the world basically talking to the top behavioral scientists about the unconscious patterns in human decision-making. 
And for me, it was a totally life-changing experience. I was somebody who believed up until that point that, you know, you could really be anything you wanted and your behavior was all your own. I was a big you know, <laughs> proponent of just sort of free will. And then I go and I meet all of these experts who subject me to all of their classic experiments and show me again and again and again that so much of my decision-making and the decision-making of most of humanity is totally statistically predictable because we have inherited these ancient instinctive decision-making systems that kept us alive for you know hundreds of thousands of years. And we're only just now as a species, very, very recently in evolutionary terms, able to make any kind of decisions for ourselves or be creative or rational in any sort of real sense. And so in that first loop is the little predictive circle of decisions that we make as humans. And there are, you know, if you read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is another book we could have talked about today, because that was one. also seminal. It's a great yep. one. That one, you know, is about like, if you starve a human being of the necessary time and information to make a decision, the mistakes they will make are incredibly predictable. That's his fundamental wow. thesis. So based on that, who's more starved of time and information than modern humans? We are then subject to what I consider the second loop. And this is the modern infrastructure of guidance and some would argue manipulation that, you know, ranges from cigarettes to advertising and the way you are constantly dissuaded from saving any money. It's the modern mechanisms of manipulation that play on our fundamental instincts inside that first loop. And then that third loop, the one outside of that, is what I'm worried about and what the book is really fundamentally about. And that is you take those two things, the very predictable mistakes we make, the ways we make them in the modern landscape, and then you feed all that through a pattern recognition system like AI, you're going to wind up in this third loop where we don't make good decisions for ourselves. It takes away our ability to step back and make good decisions for ourselves because we start to assume that AI's got us. The AI knows which of these people I should hire. Why would I get involved in that? The AI knows that this guy's a credit risk and this person is not, and that's how I'm going to give out loans. You know, the predictive promise of AI is so convenient, so efficient, and so profitable that I think it's about to basically encircle those first two loops in a spiral that I don't know how we're going to break out of. And it's a very human tendency. I mean, to use a very heavy-handed metaphor, Germans in Berlin when they were losing the war. They hadn't yet lost it, but they were losing it. The loyalists would say, oh, you know, the Fuhrer has a plan. Well, sure, he's losing on the Eastern Front, but the Fuhrer has a plan. Uh, right. Sure, the Allies have just landed in France, but the Fuhrer has a plan. And it's a human tendency to want someone above you or someone who you perceive has more information than yeah, you. Yeah, we love, yeah. We love I mean, a leader. We, we love, love an authoritarian. Or, or, or a god. Yes, you know? that's right. That's um, right. I mean, we could really get ourselves in trouble today, but that's right. Well, that's I, okay. It, this is a like a vowed atheist podcast. Okay, okay, okay. Well, you know, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like all of these researchers that I got to speak to for the book, you know, will tell you like, we love to hand off our decision-making to systems that we don't understand. One of the classics is the whole concept of anthropomorphism, mm -hmm. which is ascribing sophistication to a system we don't understand. And that is the fundamental basis of things like superstition. Superstition is trying to say, oh, if I throw salt over my shoulder, that will offset the bad luck I might experience from having spilled this that salt. That one works. I, right? I, <laughs> that yeah. one works, right? But it's funny because I, even though I study this stuff, I totally throw salt over my mm -hmm. shoulder. I, I take psychological comfort from obeying the rules of superstition. And it's the same thing here with all of these categories that I think AI is playing around in. 
is, you know, we would rather ascribe sophistication to this system, you know, some of these generative art pieces of software. And I've been playing around a lot with one called Midjourney. You know, there's also Dali and there's another one called Scatter Diffusion. They're incredible. You throw in a text prompt, in this case, into a channel on Discord, and it'll kick back a piece of art in any style you specify. You say watercolors, you say impressionistic, you say photorealistic, and then you say, you know, I was looking at one where it was like an elderly man in a sombrero with a machete in this sort of, I can't remember what style it called, but it kicked out a piece of art that I would absolutely throw on my wall. And what I think is about to happen is like, we're going to start using that in this way that's going to wipe out the commercial illustration industry without realizing that this thing is just kicking back at us past examples of art it has seen. But we love to pretend that this thing is somehow creative or more weirdly, and I wonder how you feel about this as an artist, like that we'll feel some sort of weird authorship, even though all we are really doing is feeding a, a piece of Play-Doh into the crank. You know what I'm saying? This is the first time, I think, at least in our living memory, where the tools for making visual art have really taken a huge leap. I mean, 60 years ago, it was paint and... Cutting things yeah, out cutting and things pasting out. them there. Yep. That's right. And so, and that is the musical equivalent of not having a recording technology. Really, right. you want music, you got to make it yourself. And now we've got these things that are able to generate art. And in the 1950s, the Hammond B3 came out, or I guess recording is a better example. That, sure. So when recording started in the 40s, musicians everywhere went on strike because they thought they would never get a job again. Hmm. And what ended up happening is recording became the medium through which music is now preserved and disseminated and made musicians bigger stars than they'd ever been. Although it's funny because I have a friend whose father was a band leader and singer, and you could never make that guy angrier, supposedly, than saying the words, the Beatles, mm -hmm. because they were the first people that wrote and performed their own stuff. That combined with recorded music was the end of being a, you know, the guy out in front crooning to the ballroom, and he ended his life as a chef in New Orleans. So... You're absolutely right, right? The potential for a musician after recorded music was so much higher than when every ballroom had to have its own orchestra. On the other hand, a lot of those people who worked in those ballrooms wound up chefs. Yes. And so this is the problem is that the right. like the industry itself is way better and you know it's grown exponentially. But some of the people who are unlucky enough to be caught in the middle of that yes. do get left behind. Yeah. And your friend's dad was wrong. I mean, you know, Patsy Cline's greatest hit, sure. Crazy, was written by Willie Nelson. I mean, that's still how yes. music is. Yes. Every artist you love, almost every artist you love doesn't write Well, and songs. I'm sure he was at the, yeah. you know, he was on the business end of all these different changes going yeah. on. And he just managed to locate his rage with the Beatles. That's yeah, right. That's, sure. right. that's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they're a big target. Yeah, right? he'd like spit um, in his own living room. But it, like it's just, really hard. Yeah. And this is one of the things that uh, that you describe beautifully in your book is it's, it is really hard to see past new technology, mm. especially if you're used to working in, a, you know, the old fashioned way. And yeah. one, of, one of the things I think about a lot is that, you know, you you always think the old ways are better, right? Because you and I are a little bit older and we've learned a lot of things the analog way. You probably learned how to write in school. Sure. I think that's better, but my evidence for that being better is simply that, you know, I'm older and I know how to do things. So like, you know, it's it's a fallacy. Like it might be yeah. that, you know, you don't really need to know how to handwrite. Right. And when someone who is in school today is expressing their ideas in 20 years, they'll probably be as articulate as I am, whether they know how to write by hand or not. Right. And 
so I actually had to rewrite a section of my book after reading a piece of yours. Oh, geez. You straight up just, you articulated oh, this geez. idea much better. I'm terribly no, sorry. Yeah. A couple of books did that to me. It screwed me <laughs> yeah, up bad. So I'm sorry about that. No, it's a, it, it's just one of the things I loved about your book is that it, you know, it was sharpened you. my own that. thinking. So I'll just phrase this as a question and let you run with it. Does AI need to become artificial general intelligence in order to disrupt the world? Oh, geez. No. That's the problem. That's the problem. And that's one of the fallacies that I think is sort of getting us into trouble is that we assume it won't be a danger to our human agency until it is so smart that it's, you know, running the world. And that's because we've seen that sci-fi movie. We think of, you know, Skynet. Until it has Terminators, it's right. No until it has Terminators, yeah. it's no problem. Well, no, I, I would argue no. I think as soon as it can impersonate human decision-making well enough, it's going to screw up our ability to make decisions for ourselves. And we are already seeing that. So the places in which you see it impersonating music, impersonating art, already that's a big one. But, you know, in places where, for instance, we're relying on it to group us together by affinity, which is how social media companies use it, right? Trying to figure out like, what are you going to like based on what other people have liked in the past, right? Like TikTok is driven by a pattern recognition system that says, Lucas, you enjoyed this kind of thing and behaved with it, watched it multiple times, paused it, commented on it, whatever you did to interact with it. Those are markers it uses to determine that you're going to be way into other stuff like it. And it begins mapping you against other people who have liked that thing in the same way in the past and begins kicking out to you more and more things that it thinks you're going to like. And I don't know what your experience is like with TikTok, but my experience with TikTok is really obsessive. And this is part of why I don't drink anymore <laughs> is, you know, I think I'm one of these power users. And I, someday I want somebody from TikTok to come out of the woodwork and explain to me really what category I fall into. I think I'm in probably whatever that top 1% is that gets so fixated in my scrolling of TikTok that at a certain point, it tells me to go to bed. TikTok actually kicks me a video at a certain point that says, you've been scrolling for quite a while. There'll be plenty more videos to watch tomorrow, but right now you should get some sleep. Wow. Like literally, right? And that, like, let me tell you, I think you gotta be pretty addicted for the dealer to come to you and say, I think you've had enough, buddy, right? <laughs> yeah. When the bartender cuts you off, in social media, you know, you've really, it's, it's really got you. And so when I think about the make it, what, you know, it's at least two hours every weekend. It's probably more than that. You know, my time lost. I have a friend who was one of the originators of the endless scroll, the system that you write about him, I think. Yeah. I mentioned yeah. him, you know, he calculated the billions of hours of human life that he thinks he's wasted by having created that. And he's full of regret about it. I think you could argue that those things are doing as much damage to my productivity and my ability to make good decisions and, you know, my relationship with my kids and anything else as some, you know, Terminator bot that takes over the world. Like, I think our behavior is going to be affected in the short term in these really fundamental ways that we are having trouble getting out in front of because it just looks like distraction or mm -hmm. worse, it, it looks like enthusiasm. You know, my relationship to video games is very similar to my relationship with TikTok. Like people always say like, oh, I'm a gamer, I'm into games. And there's a whole, obviously there's this vast Twitch culture and it's, you know, it's esports is bigger than real world sports, you know, all that stuff <laughs> so is happening. Sad. I don't know if those people's relationship to video games is anything like my relationship to video games. It's not just enthusiasm, it's compulsion. It's a different category of interaction than just enthusiasm. And so I think it's 
changing our brains. And I think obviously history will have to judge whether it's the kind of catastrophe that I predict it could be, but it's so much more insidious and plays on our inborn characteristics or attributes than a simple like robot overlord that enslaves us all. I think it is empowering the wrong parts of our brain and that's what's going to enslave us way before something has us, you know, bent to the yoke. So for listeners who um, have not heard about Jake's book, this is basically the very beginning of it, what we've just described. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into really beautiful details about how all this stuff can affect humanity. I love the way you start it by uh, one of the first things you say is that human beings are just not capable of understanding evolution or you quote an evolution yes, biologist. Yes. And the reason is the, the time. Like, it seems like, you know, you scroll TikTok, it seems like an hour that you've used, but how many human lifetimes is that over a few generations of That's TikTok right. users? That's right. And in the short term, it's so quick to say, oh, this is just an idle distraction that's affecting a certain number of people. But our inability to see a big abstract problem before it really becomes a huge issue is so limited, right? And we've seen this again and again. Climate change is the classic one. Like mm -hmm. the same reason that people continue to doubt evolution has to do, I think, with the same mechanism that keeps us from being able to recognize that we have an existential threat to human life on this planet in the form of climate change, because we haven't felt it personally. So Jake, I yep. want to ask you the question that we end every show with, which is to recommend two books to our audience. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, I mean, I would definitely recommend the seminal work by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a big, it's a life changer. It is totally an amazing book as a primer for what hacking your mind is all about. It's definitely a huge, I mean, it's an earth shaker. You just, once you start to sort of grok what he's describing, you start to realize just how predictable a lot of human behavior really is and how profitable it is for a company to deprive you of the time and the resources that you need to make a good decision. It makes you realize why so much of the world operates in the way it does and why you wind up making the same dumb choices again and again, right? So that book is totally amazing. Another one, and this is one that, I don't know, I think maybe you read the, the summary of this rather than actually like reading the whole thing. I couldn't even really grok the whole thing because it's way too smart for me. But there's an amazing book called Social Choice and Legitimacy, The Possibilities of Impossibility by Elizabeth Patty and John Penn. I think I may have just transposed their names. I think it's John... We can look uh, it up. Been, yeah, well, whatever it is. Yeah. Patty and Penn is how they're known among the academic set. I've talked to them. They're very nice people. And they're interesting because they both, they've made themselves quite unpopular at several academic circles because they are political scientists, but they're also mathematicians. And what they've basically shown in the same way that the coexistence of civilizations in the universe at the same time, the chance of that is so infinitesimally small, they point out mathematically that coming to consensus as a democracy is an impossible thing mathematically. You <laughs> cannot agree, essentially, is what they're saying. And even though we've all watched The West Wing and we think that the right speech at the right moment is gonna get everybody on board, you know, and that's how the episode ends, they're saying that's not true. And we as a society need to get over that illusion because it's gonna keep getting us into trouble. Instead, they say the closest thing you can come to is legitimacy. And they define legitimacy as a system that even though you may disagree with the outcome it leads to, you have faith that the system that made that decision is a legitimate system. And they argue that we basically have to kind of rebuild our values as a democracy in the service of legitimacy over 
the idea that we can reach consensus. And the reason I took a, such a big interest in this in my book is that I think that if you're going to pre-program decision-making in this world on certain assumptions, and one of those assumptions is that we can somehow satisfy everybody or that there is an optimal, quote-unquote, objective function, which is how the AI people describe it, that AI can be pointed at, Patty and Penn would be like, that doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. The closest we can get is legitimacy. And right now, AI is making huge amounts of decisions without having acquired the necessary, quote unquote, legitimacy. We haven't seen into its decision-making systems. We haven't gotten to the place of confidence in how it makes choices for us to believe in it in the way that we would need to to build civilization on it. So they're another one that blew my mind. Thanks so much, Jake. When you have your next book, we'll have you back. Love it. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it, the thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. We're really smart monkeys, which yeah. in a cosmic scale might be as impressive as being really smart cockroaches. Totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs>